You're listening to the World Soccer Talk podcast, the only podcast about watching soccer on TV and online. Welcome to episode 167. Coming up on this week's show, we have live soccer on television, news about NBC starting talks with the Premier League about renewing the TV rights deal, our take on Grant Wall getting fired by Sports Illustrated, is this the end of the International Champions Cup? Plus, we have letters from you, the listeners, in our mailbag section. I'm Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined alongside Kartik Krishnair, my co-host. Kartik, um, let, let, let's start off, um, uh, if you don't mind, with um, Sunderland Till I Die. So, season two, um, both of us have now watched that uh, on Netflix. Uh, season one, I think you would agree, is probably one of the, the, the best uh, soccer do- documentaries, especially in the last five years. What I would say about season two, though, Kartik, is that um, while I enjoyed it, and I thoroughly recommend that uh, listeners and, and, and obviously viewers watch it, I, I think it's one of those things where maybe they had a little bit of closer rain on the, the production or didn't let the cameras go into certain places. But this is a, a, a kind of a, a better... A, be- a better feel, a, be- a better look at Sunderland FC and uh, not so much uh, dirt or, or uh, a grime on this one, I think. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that, Chris. I mean, I, I thought that it was, uh, uh, unfortunately, and it, these documentaries generally don't have season twos, right? I don't remember a club one that has in, in a while. So uh, this was actually encouraging that there was a season two. But it looked like um, what happened is when you go from Ella Short's uh, ownership, absentee ownership, he's sitting in Florida running Sunderland. But pumping as much money, and I, and I think that comes out in the first episode, right? First or second episode when Stuart Donald and, and his uh, financial staff are looking at it, um, looking at the book, saying, okay, well, we had an owner that was willing to put any amount of money in to sustain losses. I'm not willing to do that. But um, when you had that kind of loose control of Sunderland, uh, it was up to the club staff to make a determination about how the doc- the, the flow of the documentary in season one. And we got this no-holes-barred look, uh, which even included uh, looking at the players like the Aiden McGeeties and, and, and the Jack Rodwells, the guys who had at one time been stars or at least very promising players, and uh, how they handled the, 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 the relegation and cut in in wages, uh, wanting to be transferred, etc. What we got in season two was more propaganda-ish view from the club. I liked some of the interactions with club staff, mm-hmm. um, which I always like in these documentaries, and and, and uh, love that. In the uh, that, that's probably the best aspect of the goal hanger films uh, that Gary Lineker did that we saw aired in this country on NBC, the Watford and Crystal Palace and West Brom documentaries was the talk with club staff. Um, there's a big emphasis on fans. Uh, I kind of love but hate how uh, in the uh, in, in in the um, uh, uh, league uh, the league trophy. I can't I can't even remember who the sponsor is now. Check trade, right? Check trade, um, right? Yeah, uh, how they uh, when they're playing the Newcastle U21s at the Stadium of Light, they make it look like they're playing Newcastle, right? Because it's such a big derby, yep. and you have the new Newcastle crest, etc. Although the crowd that night kind of reflected the. The cup, right? It was it was a small smallish crowd. Uh, but my my biggest takeaway from this is that um, all of the things that we've heard from Sunderland fans that began to get muted as Phil Parkinson came in uh, in December of of 
this season, which would be the the next season, right? But the season that currently is suspended mm-hmm. um, and turned the club uh, around quickly. It has the club now in a position where they, they may get automatic promotion. If they don't, they, they, they're the favorites to come up via the playoffs. But prior to that, there was a lot of complaints about Stuart Donald from Sunderland fans. Uh, Sunderland fans wanted um, Ellis Short out of the club, as you saw at the very end of season one, and then was played again as they did the intro to season two. You know, get out of our club. You heard the Mackins uh, chanting and screaming. But then what what I've heard from Sunderland fans and listened on – on podcasts, you know, Jonathan Wilson and Barry Glendening are two very prominent Sunderland fans in, in the uh, UK media, is that Stuart Donald is this real spendthrift. He doesn't want to spend money on anything and, and is afraid to uh, to fund losses. So sometimes you, you, you hear fans and media say that about an owner and it's like, OK, that's just a very convenient narrative. You see it in the boardroom. <laughs> Right in this documentary, you see that's absolutely the case. He does not, and granted, they've been relegated to League One, but he does not want to invest or spend the kind of money uh, that Ellis Short did. And Ellis Short's money sustained, for all the critiques of him, sustained Premier League status for 10 years for a club that probably should not have been in the top flight for 10 years. Let's be honest about it, okay, given their history, given their up-and-down history. Never mind their, the, the size of their of their supporter space, and never mind uh, that great night in 1973 when they beat Leeds United in, in the uh, FA Cup final. They're a club that has been a yo-yo club historically for the last 40 years, and suddenly they had a decade of top-flight football sustained by an owner that was offshore and that um, the, the, the fans – came to hate because he was offshore and distant uh, and uh, uh, based in in Florida, based in the United States. But um, now you see what happens when you get um, uh, more localized ownership. So it wasn't a particularly, it wasn't particularly well done when you compare it to season one, Chris, but there were these, these narratives that I like that, that were pretty interesting to me. Yeah. The financials are a huge part of this one. uh, And, and um, so so much so that uh, Charlie Meffin is one of the lead characters in in this, uh, in this uh, second season where he's really laser focused on generating as much money from, I mean, every opportunity as well as uh, reducing costs. And we see that throughout um, this series. It, it, It is a major theme. Team. And and that's why I partly wonder too whether or not Sunderland had a little bit more influence this time um, in season two over the production or, or the recordings or what they did film and didn't film. Um, but then again, though, too, I mean, um, League One is not going to be as exciting as the Championship in terms of uh, all, the, well, even the Premier relegation from the Premier League, all the drama, all the things that are happening in terms of. Scandals and this, that, and the other, and and, and Jack Jack uh, Rodwell is just one example of season one. Just just the uh, incredulity in terms of some of the things that happened in that season. But but some, I mean, going through some of the other things in this uh, second season, you had the transfer deadline day drama. Uh, that was really interesting to watch. Um, you had Lyndon Gooch, the American, scoring the winner in the final minutes of the game in the first episode. Uh, the suspense of Will Gregg taking a penalty. Uh, what a competition, even such as the Checker Trade Trophy, means to a local community. Uh, Johnny Williams uh, coming back and making a brief cameo. And and, and in all of this, um, to me, Kartik, it shows that if anything comes out, out of this season too, it shows me how much heart and love there is for Sunderland among their local communi- community. You really get to feel that more than in season one, I believe, in terms of 
just just understanding um, w- what this club means to to the local area. Um, going back to the financials, though, for a minute, though, Kartik, it was interesting in this uh, second season where you had one of the communications manager, I think it was Sophie or Sophia, and working really closely with Charlie Meffin and. Uh, I mean, in terms of just trying to get that those attendance numbers as high as possible and uh, him kind of bossing her around and her standing up for herself a little bit and saying, yep, we're working on it, we're, we're focused on it. And then in one of the episodes, you see her uh, packing her box and, and leaving and there was no... There was no uh, explanation of why. You mean she left? It was just, and I thought it was at the right at the end of one of the episodes. I thought that the next episode would explain and go into talking to her about um, what happened. And although she was interviewed, I think in, even in the first episode, kind of where she was reflecting back on on the season, that I thought was interesting. And, and they didn't uh, completely. Uh, I mean, we can guess what happened, but they didn't completely tell us what happened. So that adds a little bit of intrigue to to it. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it. I mean, to me, Kartik too. Also, it shows. Um, I mean, Sunderland obviously has high aspirations, wanting to get back into the championship, wanting to, you mean, uh, move back up the league. But it does show you how challenging the championship and League One are uh, in terms of the leagues. I mean, nothing is a given. Uh, everything has to be earned, and um, there's some good teams in those leagues that are playing good football. And um, it's a long, long season. It's. Uh, I can imagine working at a club like that would be pretty stressful, um, especially if you're behind the scenes uh, working at the club. But um, I enjoyed it. I really, really did. I, th- I thought it was, um, <clears throat> again, not as good as the first one, but but definitely highly recommended. I can't yeah. t- what about I, you? I, I, tend to, I tend to agree because I think the financials are a really important thing for people to understand because um, – and I don't want to preach too much here, but I'm just going to say this. There is always anger at your owner. There's always anger at uh, particularly foreign owners among uh, supporter spaces in England and and, uh, and especially American owners and or American-based owners in the case of Ellis Short, right? He's an Irishman, but he lives in Florida um, and he's tax exile, all that stuff. But you have to – kind of consider what happens with investment when you get when when th- those people sell the club and it's in the hands of someone who is much more spendthrift and i think um just as, as a reasonable example for sunderland fans they can think about their neighbor their biggest rival um and how he's run that club newcastle mike ashley and unfortunately you can be unhappy with your owners not being ambitious enough or being uh um being absentee landlords but then oftentimes when you get sold to a uk-based owner they end up like mike ashley he's not the only example of an owner like that there are a lot of them around in, in the football league so um that was a, i think a big takeaway and why this is an important watch for a lot of fans yeah, it also shows the pressure <clears throat> of the uh, transfer de- deadline day and uh, a, a chairman having made a promise that he was going to bring players in and it's the last day of the transfer window. No player has been brought in. There is one candidate and uh, the length um, that the chairman will go to to fulfill that promise. I mean, it's 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 kind of a... 
you mean, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because it's one of those things he had a f- trying to sign somebody. If he didn't sign somebody, the fans would have been against him, saying like, ah, you mean, he's a, he's a spendthrift. Um, if he did spend, maybe he would overspend and it may not be the player, exactly the player he wanted uh, or that may not take off. And so it, it is one of those, you can see how difficult it is as, as a chairman in a club to, to run it uh, efficiently, especially when uh, times aren't uh, going so well. Um, in terms of results and, and where you are in the league, um, yeah, Karthik, I, w- I would not want that job. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about to you. I mean, I'm sure a football manager. Um, can you play the role of a chairman in football manager, or, or just it's always always the manager? It's always the, it's always the manager, but um, the chairman, the, 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 they make the relationship between chairman and manager such that these sorts of things happen. It seems inevitably. I, I mean, I don't know what happens if you manage like Manchester City or, or uh, Chelsea, but um, the kinds of clubs I've typically managed, there are these uh, very difficult um, spending decisions. And oftentimes when you make a board request, uh, you just get shot down. I mean, uh, and in fact, it's come to the point in that game where I've, I've waited for a board member to come to me and say, hey, yeah, you guys are doing so well. This would be a good time if you want to ask for something. And that's when I go and ask for extra transfer funds or, or uh, better training facilities or better youth facilities or whatever. Because mm-hmm. it's, 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 uh, they almost overstimulate that Sunderland situation. But actually watching a documentary maybe gives me greater appreciation for football manager. That sort of thing. Um, maybe that, that's the way boardrooms work. Their, jet, their, their general inclination is toward not giving um, enough leeway to the fans, uh, to the to the to the manager, and yeah. then um, making certain demands about transfers. Now that was the January window where there's been uh, less pressure on me in football manager, the one we really saw in full detail in this documentary. But for me, it's generally the the summer window. And um, I, I have to tell you, and now, of course, next season I think will be different, uh, or if we get to next season, I, I, I recently jumped, uh, I turned down the Chelsea job and the Man City job uh, and the Everton job when I was at Cardiff. I recently took the Borussia Dortmund job um, when that became available and I was offered the job and applied. I have to say the big difference between the Bundesliga and the Premier League on the game, although the Bundesliga, at least early on, is a little tougher uh, because Bayern is so good, it's difficult. The Premier League, everybody seems to uh, beat everyone else and more teams are dropping points. Um, and the Bundesliga, you have to score more goals, which is also more difficult. But the key difference for me was the transfer window, was that I did not have to shut it down before the first match of the season. So um, you'd come out of the summer and there was just no time um, right. to, to, to make transfers. And then inevitably the board would be angry at me or, or the chairman. And I wouldn't recover that trust when I was at Cardiff until mid September, early October, there'd be fans upset because I hadn't made such and such transfer. Um, now after uh, starting my second season at Borussia Dortmund, that transfer window leeway is so important in, in, in that game. So this might explain why the Premier League, after doing it for two seasons, is backing off and they're going to go back to a – well, again, we don't know when the season's going to be, but it, it appears like they're going to go back to a normal aligned window with the rest of Europe mm-hmm. soon. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe, maybe the sequel uh, to the football manager uh, computer simulation game it will be football chairman. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think some people would get into that and say, yeah, th- th- let me see what I can do with this this club. And uh, some that might, that might be coming down the path. And then, um, yeah, Sunderland Till I Die. I can see a season three happening. And um, 
I mean, especially with everything going on going on with um, the coronavirus and the impact that that would have on a club like that or any club. I mean, that would be a good. I mean, so I wonder if the cameras have been rolling um, at least a little bit to give us an idea of um, what's happening inside that club. Um, that would be really, really interesting to watch um, next season. Hopefully, when everything's uh, uh, everything's back to normal. Um, in, in terms of some of the other things I'll be watching this past week, Kartik, um, one thing is um, the launch of E-Liga MX. So it's um, Liga MX's um, FIFA 20 uh, tournament. And what they've done is they've taken the, the regular season of the Klausura uh, that would have been played. And um, they have uh, players from each of the teams competing against each other. So it, this debuted last Friday on uh, Tuduene in Spanish. Um, no English language broadcast of this, but uh, the pr- the way that they actually treated it in terms of the production and how they went about this was extremely professional. It felt as if it was like, I mean, the next big game in Liga Max and they had the, the preview, they had the stu- st- people in the studio talking about it. And the way it worked then is that uh, they would transition to, okay, now we're going to, uh, the first game was Nakaxa against Monterey. Nakaxa, we're going to have, I mean, there's a camera in the room um, for the Nakaxa player sitting on the couch. And he says hi. And then we go over to the Monterey player and uh, uh, his camera showing showing him sitting on the couch too, getting ready to play. And then they can play, uh, they play against each other. Um, the game itself, the EA Sports uh, FIFA 20 um, on television, this would be the first time I've watched it on television. Of course, I've watched it on Twitch and other places but and played it before. But on television, not so good. Um, the, e- the iRacing, uh, the NASCAR or the, any of the iRacing ones looks flawless. Um, when you watch it on television, it looks like the real deal. Uh, FIFA definitely does not look like the real deal on television. Part of the issue was that it was laggy. There were times in in this game where I mean it just would slow down, and you could tell that there was an issue, <clears throat> an, an issue with um, the broadcast, whether it was on the FIFA uh, server side or or wherever it was. But it, it it almost stopped stopped at a couple of different places. Um, but it was it was entertaining. It was fun to watch. Um, Monterey one four two. And uh, it was great seeing the players kind of uh, excited and just uh, going through the emotions. Um, I enjoyed it. And then so pretty much every day, uh, almost every day, um, Tudo NA's got games from from the league. So you can follow it through the entire season. Um, Every weekend, there's live games. Uh, I I enjoyed it. If if you're into FIFA, I highly recommend it. Uh, also, Kartik, I watched the uh, the Belarusian Premier League, which is now live on YouTube and MyCujo. So as of last week, it was only uh, live through their website and you had to have, you, you had to be, it was geo-blocked if you were in the US. Um, so so beginning last weekend, match day four, they've been um, broadcasting live. Uh, no commentators, so you could just get the feed from the stadium. And um, there's actually the fans are in the stadium. There's probably the one game I watched, uh, which was Minsk against uh, Bate Borisov, was uh, they probably had a couple hundred fans in the stadium. Uh, no social distancing. I saw one person wearing a mask and uh, the players going at it. I mean, the quality level of the football itself isn't the greatest, but um, it was surreal to watch because it reminded me of um, the days after 9-11 where you'd look up into the sky and normally you'd see planes flying over and it was just silent. There was nothing there. 
And that was kind of the, for me, it felt surreal in a way too, that we haven't seen a live soccer game in, what, about a month. And then switching on you know, YouTube, watching it on my monitor, my monitor, and seeing a game being played and seeing fans in the stadium. And it, it, it was it was that kind of feeling. I was like, wow, this this seems really weird and strange, but but it's happening. It's I mean, just as as the pl- if the plane started flying again, and and what we would see. And, and so far in, in Belarus, twenty six deaths. Uh, last time I checked, and over two thousand cases. So it's not as if uh, the COVID nineteen uh, virus does not exist there, um, but they're just deciding to to play on. Uh, Kartik, anything else you watched um, this week? No, I've been doing a, a lot, a lot more reading, um, and, and it, some old clips, etc. I, I should say, uh, I watched the FA Cup, uh, the, the the famous Arsenal Man United uh, semifinal, which uh, uh, which the FA replayed on on YouTube this week. In in uh, just like FIFA's been doing, like right in real time, they would assign a, t- a time to it, and of course, the magical Ryan Giggs moment. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, but the, the thing that. Uh, stood out about that match for me was uh, truthfully how much more um, organized uh, or Arsenal was than I remember in some of those matches. You know, we think of them as just as free flowing football. How much more organized they were, uh, particularly in the latter stages of that match, which is what made Giggs's uh, Maisie run so much more amazing, and then also how uh, attack minded. United was, and, and particularly when you've got Beckham on one wing and you have Giggs on another, uh, that they um, they were organized, but I would say to a certain extent maybe less organized and and less shaped than uh, than Arsenal, which debunks the the historical stereotypes of both Wenger and uh, and uh, Ferguson. Now, of course, it was just one match, and those two teams played constantly in big matches over like a six or seven year period, right? It was the ultimate matchup in, in English football. But the one takeaway from watching this match with 20 years of perspective on it was that maybe uh, we, we had overstated Wenger's free flowing nature and Ferguson's uh, abil- willingness to organize in a big matchup. Now, in, in fact, I think if you just think about the Barcelona finals in 2009 and 2011 of Champions League, Ferguson was much more willing to go at Barcelona, much more willing to play football, which is why Barcelona won both those matches easily. Whereas if you contrast that when Wenger took on Barcelona in 2011 in the same Champions League that they mm-hmm. uh, took United apart at Wembley in the final, uh, <clears throat> Arsenal could have won that tie. There was a horrible call that cost him that. And oh, I yeah. think Wenger missed a, missed a sitter at the end of the match. In that and that over those two legs, Arsenal played very deep. Um, they were very organized, and then they had in Fabregas, who would have, of course end up on Barcelona within a couple of months of that, a guy who could sit deep and play nice lofted long balls or, or lofted passes to the flanks. So maybe our historical stereotypes of both those managers was incorrect. I don't know, but um, that's the only other thing I watched um, uh, other than reading a lot about football and dealing with a lot of the fallout from the news this week in football, which I know we're going to get to uh, in a few minutes. Yeah, I I mean, that's the thing about uh, people such as uh, Alex Ferguson or or Arsene Wenger is that um, they they changed. I mean, throughout their career in terms of the the way that they approached football, I, I don't think it was a you mean kind of a one you mean like a free flowing football and that was it um i think i think the one of the reasons for their success was they were able to change it uh depending on the situation 
except for, um, for Wenger, I mean, towards the latter years, it seemed to be that he was kind of stuck saying, okay, all right, I'm just going to play this way and we'll just play open attacking football and, and we'll get, I mean, and then meanwhile, they would get just, I mean, hit big time um, by teams that were a little bit smarter about the way that they played against them. But um, but yeah, that was uh, yeah, a classic uh, semi final there, Kartik. Did you watch, um, or have you watched uh, Soccer Town USA? I have not. I've been meaning to, and I still haven't. Okay. Yeah, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, it's it's now available on YouTube for free. Uh, it's the story of uh, Kearney, New Jersey, the small little town, uh, not too far away from New York, very close to Harrison, uh, New Jersey, uh, home of the uh, New York Red Bulls. And uh, it talks about the players to come out, come out of that town, about the history of the town, about... Uh, a lot of mill workers from Scotland that uh, emigrated from Scotland to the United States. And um, just as in the English game, uh, oftentimes, like on a, on a Saturday afternoon, um, they would have a little bit of free time and would form a team and start playing um, with each other, other against each other in, in different leagues and playing competitive soccer. And so this community grew uh, it included uh, three major stars, um, among many. I mean, there's, there's many others, but the, the three main ones that this documentary focuses on are John Hawks, uh, Tab Ramos, and Tony Miola, uh, three of the greatest soccer players ever to play for the United States coming out of this small little town. Um, anyway, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It talks about the, the New York Cosmos and the NESL, um, trying to qualify for the 1990 World Cup, uh, playing in the 1994 World Cup, the formation of Major League Soccer, uh, even going down to the high school level, how competitive high school soccer was, uh, and um, and the role of street soccer before there was even a thing called travel soccer. Uh, for somebody, again, if you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. Go check it out. Uh, huge thumbs up for me uh, from me on that one. And Kartik, uh, now moving on to the TV streaming news, usually I have you kick it off. I'm going to kick it off on this time just because um, the story that we that we were, were going to talk about I followed up to get some more additional details. So the story we were going to talk about was that NBC Sports and Comcast have started discussions with the Premier League about trying to renew the U.S. rights in the next 12 months. The current TV deal ends in May 2022. Um, now, you would think that that makes total sense. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, it's an opportunity right now to have discussions with the Premier League and talk about, um, hey, what can we do to renew the, the rights deal? Let's start up the discussions now. There's no, there's no live soccer on. We've got a little bit more extra time to kind of focus on these things. Well, I followed up with a couple of my, my sources, and both of them had said the same thing, that the story that was reported in the Daily Mail, I think it was by Matt Hughes, uh, in their... Uh, belief was was incorrect was that there have been no discussions between NBC Sports and the Premier League uh, nor Sky Sports and the Premier League now th th those are the my sources those are what my sources are telling me um, it's quite possible I mean Sky Sports has I mean hundreds of employees if not thousands uh, so does Comcast and NBC Sports so there's a possibility of somebody having a discussion with the Premier League but nothing formalized um, there's still quite a long ways to go before those talks can even really, I mean, it's going to be next year, really more likely, uh, after we see what's happening with everything going on this summer, that there's this real, real discussions can happen. But, uh, but anyway, that, that's one to, to keep an eye out for is that, um, 
whether NBC Sports, obviously, they'll be want, wanting to renew that. And um, according to the article, I mean, in, in the article, it sounds like it would be a great time because maybe, I mean, the, the competitors, if it's CBS or DAZN or Hulu or, or Amazon, might be busy with other things, not focusing on the TV side. Um, but uh, I wanted it to be true, Kartik, but I guess it, it, it wasn't so. Yeah, I, I think, uh, uh, honestly, w- it's going to be difficult to negotiate new agreements here because we don't know what the next few seasons are going to look like. Not only do we have uh, this pandemic, but we do have um, we do have World Cup 2022, which I've always feared might affect rights fees for domestic broadcasters uh, or for domestic leagues. Yeah. So uh, because that's going to interrupt the season. I mean, essentially, you're not going to have Premier League football in, in this specific case um, between mid-October, uh, approximately mid-October, and uh, and Boxing Day, right? I think they might Boxing Day might be the day they come back, or or uh, uh, maybe the, the 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 date right before Christmas, the, whatever that would be, December 23rd, whatever 22nd. Um, but maybe in the U.S. it doesn't matter as much because that coincides with uh, American football season, uh, or at least historically. We don't know where seasons are going to shake out after all this. But uh, So maybe maybe it doesn't affect us as much. But I do have this concern, Chris, that nobody has talked about, that the next cycle of rights um, – Fee, uh, that there's going to be some effect on some of these leaks because of the uh, the breaks being elongated yeah. at, at times where uh, generally they're matches and that they're going to be more matches. The seasons are going to start earlier one season and later the uh, another season uh, putting matches in the summer. So that's something to really consider with these rights fees. Yeah, and it could be too that for NBC Sports and the Premier League that it makes sense to renew those rights at um, even when we get closer to 2022 and they may say hey we'll give you a make good because of that uh that year of uh, 2020 when things went screwy and yeah uh, you guys weren't able to actually um show the entire season in its complete in completion or whatever whatever it is whatever happens um it may be best for them to work together to renew that perhaps we'll see Next up, Kartik, is that um, speaking about uh, previously E-Liga Max, which is the uh, FIFA 20 tournament, now Major League Soccer has done it now too. So Major League Soccer will uh, debut EMLS on television. Now, they've had this on Twitch before, but this will be on television. This starts uh, Sunday night at 7 p.m. on FS1. And uh, I think the first game is Chicago against Cincinnati. And then that's followed by uh, LAFC against LA Galaxy. The, the, the one interesting thing, interesting thing about this, Kartik, too, watching the um, E Liga Max uh, 1 and 2 do NA is that uh, the games are so short. I mean, it's, the games were like 12 minutes, 12 minute halves. So by the time you, you get started, you're watching it, watching it, it's, you know, 2 2, whatever it is, at halftime. Then it's a, it's a commercial break, and then you come back. I'm like, man, it would have been great if these games were actually a little bit longer. But I guess it, I guess FIFA, the game itself, um, otherwise the score might be, I don't know, 6-6, 10-10, something like, like that. It's, um, I don't know, I, I just assumed that it, the games would have been longer and a little bit more a little bit more depth to them. So um, so, I, I, so I know that, uh, for example, FS1 on Sunday night will have those two games I mentioned, and then they'll have uh, a game after that one, which will be the winner of, of the first uh, the first games, the first game one and game two. So they're planning having three games within, I think, within a couple of hours um, on the broadcast. But um, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll tune in. 
yeah, I just want to uh, something about this is that this is going to be the third season, right? When you mentioned the previous two years have been on Twitch, and there there has been a little bit of a following for it, and so now it's going to go mainstream uh, on FS1. Of significant note, Chicharito is going to be playing for the Galaxy, so uh, <laughs> he is the guy who drives. Uh, soccer fandom in this country more than any player in my my opinion other than Messi and, and Ronaldo. I want to see if there's some sort of translation to him playing a video game. There might be. I mean, he, he has such a following and, and really kind of the personality um, to, to drive uh, even English uh, language dominant fans. So uh, that, that to me is a big takeaway. By the way, Nani is going to be playing for the Orlando City team, which is uh, also kind of exciting for Man United fans. Um, and a couple other big stars will be part of this as well. Uh, next news item is that the International Champions Cup this summer has been cancelled. Uh, no surprise there. The, the fear with this one, though, is that uh, Stephen Ross, who uh, owns uh, Relevant Sports and also owns the Miami Dolphins, and is the person that's really funding um, the International Champions Cup, um, has mentioned, I think it was in the New York Times a couple of months ago, that um, that he was looking now to, this is before coronavirus happened, uh, looking to the clubs to be financing more of this, and uh, rather than all the money coming out of his pocket. And uh, was casting fears that uh, perhaps ICC, the future of that, uh, was in question slightly, perhaps. Uh, And again, this is before coronavirus. So now with ICC being cancelled this summer and probably definitely rescheduled for next summer. uh, But again, next summer, you've got the Olympics, you've got Copa America, you've got the Euros. And you've got leagues probably wanting to try to catch up on making up lost games. Who knows how ICC would fit into that also? Um, so the question is, I mean, this is kind of a, more of an open question, Carter, uh, I don't know, you don't have to answer it, but is the, the future of ICC, there's definitely a huge question mark about that um, uh, going into the future. Yeah, I, I look, I think also Ross wants to do something with UEFA that would compete with the World Club Cup potentially, right? right? So that might be, and that would that would ostensibly be using the ICC model to become a um, an actual um, uh, what, what's the word? A competitive match, competitive competition. I get the sense if that doesn't happen, this thing might drop out, and you'd still see him bring occasional friendlies to uh, to Ann Arbor and to Miami. In particular, those two places where he's he's very uh, well connected. I think he'll continue to bring. We saw him bring a friendly last year to um, to Miami that, that I attended, Barcelona and uh, Napoli. That was outside the ICC um, umbrella, right? It was just a, it was another game. Mm-hmm. I, I think he dubbed it something, but it was another. It was just another match that I think relevant will continue to do. I do think that the the future of the ICC is in significant doubt if he cannot get UEFA to do this thing where there are competitive uh, matches. Now, I have to say this. um, Another football manager perk uh, playing in the World Club Cup uh, on football manager has me appreciating how short that offseason is and how difficult uh, it is to heal players and have full fitness for your team uh, if you you play in that competition. So – um, football manager doesn't have the ICC and they're not competitive matches and you can make eight substitutions or whatever. But I understand now if you have a competitive tournament with clubs over the summer, you almost have to do something with your your calendar, with your 
Um, and this goes back to the point about the rights fees for, for the Premier League and other leagues uh, with your calendar, with your August to May, because uh, I, these footballers aren't machines. And I think especially after this pandemic, we understand public health concerns may be Trump sporting concerns. So um, I don't know where everything's going to shake down. It's possible the sport will look completely different in a couple of years. And you will have Stephen Ross and the ICC as a competitive tournament over the summer and maybe um, the Bundesliga and the Premier League and, um, and, and the Liga, they don't kick off till September. I don't know. Maybe that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah, and the FIFA Club World Cup, um, the inaugural one from from a, I mean, the the, the way that um, FIFA wants to run it in the future, which looks very much like ICC. The first one is supposed to be scheduled for next summer, twenty twenty one, I think, in China. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting because many ways clubs will be looking for ways to generate quick revenue more now than in the future than in the past. So there could be an ICC where it makes sense, where they're looking at it as a, a way to, to generate a ton of money. But then again, they're too Kartik. Who knows if there'll be any people in the stadiums? And who knows if there are people in the stadiums, how many tickets will be sold? I mean, so there's so many different variables. It's too early to tell. Um, but it's certainly um, one to keep an eye out for. Next up is uh, some comings and goings in the uh, soccer talent space. And first of all, that's uh, former BN Sports presenter Kay Murray has landed on her feet and been hired by ESPN. She made the news official this week on her social media account. She actually got hired earlier this year, but didn't want to make the announcement until after the birth of her baby and her first appearance on ESPN. And um, on Wednesday, I believe it was, uh, she appeared on air on ESPN's Sports Center Global. So it looks like she's going to be doing more of the global broadcasts for ESPN um, on the sports side. And with her being there in Bristol, Connecticut, or actually she was broadcasting from home, though, but being in the Northeast, maybe perhaps there's a chance that she'll be on some of the the soccer broadcasts, maybe the Bundesliga or or, or some other things. We don't know yet. It's too early to tell. But um, but she has been hired by ESPN, which is is fantastic news. Yeah, and and I think uh, also you might see her... Uh, be part of something like the uh, the, the simulcast that ESPN, uh, well, I can't remember if it was ESPN News or ESPN2 used to do. Remember with uh, with these kind of small segments from SportsCenter Global uh, and, and including uh, Champions League coverage, etc. Now, that that was uh, before they had this this whole ESPN FC setup, so maybe not. But uh, that's another place where she might pop up on uh, American television talking about soccer again. So good news for Kay Murray. Bad news, though, for Grant Wall, who has been fired by Sports Illustrated magazine. And uh, this is something I, I, I never want to see. I never like seeing people getting fired. But um, in this case, it was uh, the the new owner of Sports Illustrated, Maven, um, looked to be pretty uh, insulted by some of the things that Grant Wall was saying publicly about that corporation. Um, so within days of, of some of the things he'd been saying, he'd been fired. Personally, I mean, I like Grant Wall as a writer. I think he's a great writer. He has a great list of uh, contacts. The thing that I, I've always been a big critic of him for was that when he was working with Fox Sports and when he was doing a lot of the, the broadcast on the, whether it would be talking about the, the U.S. presidential election for U.S. soccer, he was really, really soft on a lot of the... Um, you mean the Sunil Galatis, the Carlos Corderos, uh, the Kathy Carters. I mean, kind of really kind of seemed to be playing more to that side 
um, and less so didn't seem to be given a lot of time to the people such as Eric Winalda, Carl Martino, uh, and, and many others that were running in opposition. So he seemed to be very much um, part of the establishment. All right, Kartik, let's move on to two uh, best soccer films and documentaries of all time for consideration. Uh, we did part one in the last episode. We'll go through part two pretty quickly on this one, just because we've got uh, a long list of uh, ones to share. Uh, so let's not go too in-depth as far as our thoughts on it, um, just because of, of, of the limits of time. First up is Hillsborough, which is... Uh, to me, it is a must-see documentary. Uh, this one was when we mentioned it on Twitter. I think there were a lot of people saying, like, like why, why, sh- why is this a must-see? Like, why is this included in this list? And it's included because, in many ways, it's, um, it is the explanation of what happened. It goes into a lot of detail, and, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad, it's depressing, it's horrifying. Um, but before this, this documentary existed... There were two sides to the story. There were a lot of people that said that, yeah, it was all the Liverpool fans' fault. Don't listen to uh, the inquiry. Uh, it was, you know, the Liverpool fans were the ones that caused this. Um, when in actual fact, it was a lot of mistakes that happened um, by the police and in terms of the way that the fans were, were segregated and uh, the, the police control of this whole situation. Um, so this documentary, to me, again, is, is just uh, one of the all-time greats. Um more so for the really the investigative part of it in terms of going through hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours of research and, and uh, film to put together this this really just incredible documentary about what happened that fateful day. Next up is, uh, I'm not sure if you saw this one, Kartik, Diego Maradona, the documentary that came out, uh, HBO premiered it, I think it's in September last year. Yeah, I was actually supposed to go to the opening. I was invited to it, and then I had to travel with Miami FC to uh, to an away match, and so I still haven't seen it. Yeah, this this one is is amazing because it, I mean, going back into the nineteen eighties, his time uh, moving to Napoli, and you would never expect there to be so much film available of him. You mean just in, in just kind of casual, just hanging out at his house or um, going to trainings. And it's one of those things that um, who knew how many cameras were, were on him. But it's a really, really good documentary. The soundtrack is amazing. It's uh, I think Giorgio Moroder uh, has got a lot of the, 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 the music on there. But um, yeah, highly recommended. So check that one out. The next one, this one is on the list. Um, I, I think for one scene only, Kartik. I, maybe there's more to it than 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 that. But being Liverpool, which was a documentary that was uh, produced by Fox Sports. It was, this was uh, Fox Sports's uh, entry into saying, okay, all right, we're going to start making documentary films, and we're going to start um, putting a lot of money in, investing into uh, make, making um, films and and, and uh, documentaries. Uh, and this one, I, I remember it because of one scene. What about you, Kartik? Actually, there's more than one scene. There's actually a couple of memorable scenes from this one. Uh, yeah, the scene uh, with Joe Allen. Is that the scene you're thinking about? Because no. Because border. Well, no, no, not, not that one. Uh, Raheem Sterling. Uh, I don't remember the Raheem in tra- Sterling. In training, when the, the, like, this is a young Raheem, Raheem Sterling, before anyone really knew who he was, and he was training uh, with Liverpool and Brendan Rodgers, came over and I can't remember what he said, but he was like, basically, if, if, if you're not going to concentrate on, on the football, get the hell out of here. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, now I remember. <laughs> yeah. And then the other scene I remember from this one was um, the, the envelope scene 
where it's uh, what's it, pre-season, I think it is, and Brendan Rodgers is talking about uh, the team for the upcoming season, and he's like, you mean either either you try your hardest or you don't and i've got uh, in this envelope i've got a list of names of uh, people that i've uh, that the right now are not going to be on this team for this upcoming season and then the way that they they shot it uh in the hotel uh is that you have the light shining through the envelope and you can see the envelope there's nothing in it <laughs> it's blank <laughs> so 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 mind mind games here from brendan rogers as far as uh trying to you mean really incentivize his players to push harder to to, to make this team to, to strive to be a better player um and, you know, th- th- those are the two scenes i remember there's probably some other scenes in it too it, it, it's it, it's worth watching uh it's just it, it's not as good as it, it could have been Next up, Kartik, uh, Goal. Did you see this one? The film? Oh, the film, yeah, yeah. I saw it and I saw Goal 2 also, which, was, uh, 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 which wasn't as good as Goal 1, right? It was yeah. significantly... Yeah, um, Goal 1 was okay, though. It was pretty good. It was, yeah. It's worth watching. I think, I mean, it's not, it's not going to be... This is not, it's not on my uh, all-time top list, but uh, it's... And, and that's the thing about soccer in general, is that there's so few good films about uh, about the sport. We talked about that last episode with uh, Victory or Escape to Victory, which was one of the better ones. But uh, Goal, it, it, it's worth watching. Uh, the idea, the premise was good. Um, I've taken a player from, I think, Los Angeles someone playing like kind of street soccer and a scout finding him and then taking him to Newcastle and him uh, trying to make it there. Um, the premise was good. Next up, uh, Green Street Hooligans. This is more of a mainstream I, movie, Kartik, right? I, I should mention on goal the, the reason why um, Santiago Munoz, right? That was his name. Yep. Played for Newcastle, then played for Real Madrid uh, and was involved with uh, Argentina and Mexico was because of Adidas having a role with the movie. And the reason why MLS was promoted in, in, in early scene in, in the scouting combine where he gets this quote discovered by the Newcastle scout. Uh, but that was, uh, that was my first uh, real experience in the soccer movie with extensive product placement where um, also I, I don't think there were matches that were aired against Nike opponents, right? It was just, it was yeah. an Adidas series. And that's why, for example, he wasn't, he didn't play for the U.S. in the movie uh, internationally because he uh, because the U.S. was Nike. I didn't think of it that way, and, and now you've uh, yeah. Now I think of a movie, the movie in a different way, a different light completely. And that's why he went to Newcastle at the time, which is obviously yeah. Puma he- now. Heavy, um, heavy Adidas at the time, though. Yeah, 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 exactly. So Green Street Hooligans. Uh, this was again more of a main street mo- mainstream movie about. Uh, West Ham United fans in the what, late seventies, early eighties. Um, it, it's a fun watch. I I enjoyed watching this one. Um, I'd probably watch it again if it was on you mean HBO or if I was just flipping through the channels and saw it. Um, yeah, it, it was it was fine. Uh, Graham Taylor and an impossible job. I'm not sure if you saw this one, Kartik. This was um, the uh, fly in the wall documentary about uh, England manager Graham Taylor. And uh, this this one is a must see. This one has got some yeah. really really good footage of. I mean, he's mic'd up at times, so you get to hear some of the things he's saying on the sidelines. And it's going through a period of time that uh, for England was uh, kind of a darker time in terms of uh, not qualifying for major tournaments or um, not doing so well. Even though the team, the players were fantastic, uh, gives you some insight into into that job, which was which was an impossible job because you had the pressure. 
of uh, and expectations of the fans and, and the media. Um, and it really gives you an idea of uh, how challenging that, that position is. Ben, do you like Beckham? Uh, this is one of my wife's favorites. Um, I enjoyed it. It's not much Beckham in it, uh, which is okay. And uh, the story is decent about uh, women footballers. Uh, to me, I prefer Gregory's Girl, which is a classic uh, movie uh, filmed in Scotland in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, if you can find that one, that one's, uh, that one's much better. But uh, there you go. The Class of 92, Kartik, I know you like this one, right? Yeah, I like this movie a lot. I think that this is uh, a really good look at uh, that Manchester United set of players that became so historic. Uh, Nicky Butt and Phil Neville, I think it's fair to say, did not become as good players as the as the other, uh, what would it be, four of them. Uh, now, the, the thing that's so significant about this to me is that those two seem to be the guys that were thought of as being like really elite. I mean, I think everybody knew Giggs was, right? But um, more so than Scholes, uh, of the Neville brothers, uh, Phil Neville was thought to be the better of the Neville brothers. Still had a great career, don't get me wrong. But um, And Nicky Butt, I think people thought was going to be a, a better player than David Beckham. Yep. And then um, next up, um, All or Nothing, Manchester City. So I, I didn't see this one. I know you did. I think you had mixed um, mixed, mixed feelings about this one. Yeah, it's um, – I, I mean, I guess it's interesting if, if you want to – look, I, I guess maybe there are people who look for different things in documentaries than me. They look for uh, a situation where you have uh, uh, an uber-successful club and a coach whose methods you want to emulate and you can pick up things from. So I, I do respect that there were a lot of people who – uh, wanted to see how Pep Guardiola operates and how really high-end successful players operate uh, and, and in a very propagandish way, right, mm -hmm. from the club. Now, I tend to, and I'm a Manchester City supporter, um, I tend to appreciate documentaries about adversity, strife, and clubs overcoming that or clubs failing. That's why Sunderland Till I Die, I think, is so much more interesting than any series can be that, that could possibly be made about recent-day Manchester City or Juventus or you know, Club Borussia Dortmund, right? These clubs that are elite clubs in world football. Uh, the, the Dortmund one was uh, gave a little more behind the scenes. That was an Amazon series also, but not, you know, it's more or less the same as Manchester City. So I... Um, I, I didn't care too much for this. I did go back and watch it a couple of weeks ago because now it's available in 4K, which it wasn't. At least I didn't uh, watch it in 4K when it first came out in 2018 summer. So um, I actually ended up uh, watching it a second time and with the, the uh, radar, as we talked about on, on Amazon Prime. Uh, so there was a little more layers to it the second time I watched it. But still, I, I think it should be further down people's lists, in my opinion. Uh, next up is George Best, All By Himself, which was, I believe, that was the 30 for 30 documentary by ESPN. Yeah. Um, I, this one I, I know you watched, right, Kartik? Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm a big fan of this. Not only did I watch it, I own it. So uh, I, ah, this is go. a documentary that I, I went ahead and bought after um, uh, the 30 for 30, after it had aired on ESPN. I, I paid fourteen ninety nine or whatever. I own it, and uh, I... I uh, I have not watched it a second time, but I have this peace of mind knowing I own it and I can watch it any time. And that's how good I thought it was. So this next one I have not seen, Kartik. I have it on my list. I've always wanted to get to watch it. Never had a chance. Uh, I will watch it in the future, definitely, hopefully soon. Next Goal Wins, starring um, 
manager Thomas Rongen, right? Yeah. Did, did, you, did you watch this one? I did, and, and I think that there was a lot of excitement, particularly here in South Florida, because we all know Thomas so well, um, about this documentary, and it and it was uh, it was really good. It, it, the the uh, the premise of it is that you have a country, American Samoa, that's not going to qualify right for anything, um, and. Um, but basically, the, the, the odds are against them. But you see Thomas's connection with the players. And this is why young players, if you talk, if you talk about the likes of the Josie Altadors and the Michael Bradleys and the Freddie Adus, so obviously Freddie didn't turn out to be as good as people had hoped, and the Eddie Johnsons. There was, there was a generation of American young players who Thomas had an incredible impact on. And I could go even further back here in South Florida when he, when he managed uh, Nova University and managed uh, uh, College of Boca Raton, which is now Lynn University, the young Young players who came out of there, um, who were kind of my contemporaries, my age group, uh, who who he so positively influenced. You see it in this film. It's inspirational. It, it's uh, again, I prefer documentaries about adversity, and of course, maybe I'm partial because there's someone I, I think very highly of and consider a friend in the movie as a starring uh, figure in the movie. But um, I, I, this is the sort of thing I like to watch because it, it's about adversity. And it's about challenging uh, that adversity, whether you completely overcome it or not. It, there's, there's something more interesting about it than watching something on Manchester City when they win every match. And it's just a matter of whether they win 2-1 or they win 5-1, right? Mm-hmm. Speaking of, of uh, adversity, um, the next up is uh, one of my favorites. It's uh, Jack Tua King, The Swansea Story. And if you like Sunderland Till I Die, I think you'd like this one. It's uh, a story of a club that's uh, near the bottom of the fourth division. One game to go. They have to win it in order to stay in the league. Otherwise, they um, will go down to uh, non-league. And you mean could be the end of the club. It's I mean, they're practically almost bankrupt. They got uh, just chairman that are just uh, running the, the club into the ground, and they have one game to win. And from there, um, spoiler, they, they win the game, and then you see them moving up the leagues and trying to get into the Premier League and everything that's involved in that. Um, so, so check it out. I think that one's on iTunes, but it might be on other places too. But Jack Tua King, the Swansea story. Next up is the Impossible Dream, which is the documentary that. Um, NBC Sports put together, and I think they worked in conjunction um, in the, with the, the in the UK, one of the sports um, companies there, but uh, networks there. But it's the story of the treble winning se- season for Manchester United, nineteen ninety nine, uh, winning the you mean Champions League, um, FA Cup, and league title, and uh, just just an incredible uh, documentary. Some really good interviews with uh, Clive Tilsley and uh, many people involved uh, in that incredible, I mean, former Man Man United players uh, involved in that incredible season. Uh, Rise and Shine, the Jay Demerick story. This is one I I enjoy and I've watched and and I can't remember what it was about it that I felt when I left it, I was like, this is good, but I was expecting something more. I I, I think I remember what it is. I'd heard the story so many times. Um, I think I interviewed Jay once or twice uh, and then read his story. And then when I watched the documentary, I was like, okay, there's nothing new here. This is exactly how I remembered it. Um, So if you don't know the Jay Demerit story and how he got rejected by an MLS club and then went to England to try to make, make it as a professional soccer player. Um, I'd recommend watching this one, Rise and Shine, the Jay Demerit story. 
Take Us Home, Leeds United, uh, available on Amazon Prime right now. This one I I, I enjoyed. It was, uh, I mean, the first few episodes are fantastic. As the season goes along and as the episodes go along, it's not as good as it towards the end of it, but I still recommend it. It's still really worth watching. Again, more of a, um, a fly, fly on the wall insights into how clubs are run behind the scenes, especially when you have Bielsa and, and uh, the boardroom at Leeds United. This is a, a really fascinating story. Bobby Robson, more than the manager. Man, if, if you want to uh, uh, cry a little bit or just... Uh, I mean, this is an incredible story of somebody who is successful as a player um, and as one of the best managers in the world, both at the club level and the, inter- and the international level. And just the story of Bobby Robson, just, um, I mean, Ipswich Town, taking this small club and uh, maybe helping them to win the, uh, managing them to win the first division, which is now the Premier League. Uh, just an incredible story and, and just uh, just a... An amazing man, a really incredible man. So if you haven't seen this one, highly recommend that one too. Uh, Mike Bassett, England manager, if you're ready for some laughs. Yeah, this, this is, is a, a good one. Yeah, this is a good one. It's kind of a kind of almost like a parody of the um, Graham Taylor in an impossible job or some of the England managers where you've got somebody that, uh, I mean, it just is really, really funny. A lot of English humor in this one. Uh, Mike Bassett, England manager, uh, recommend that one too. And uh, before I hand, hand it back over to you, Kartik Matthews, I, I mentioned last week's podcast, the story about Stanley Matthews on Amazon, right now on Amazon Prime, I think it is. Um, amazing documentary, really, really good about the, the life and times of one of the, the best English um, footballers in the world ever. And Kartik, I know you added a few others that weren't on the list uh, you want to share. Yeah, yeah. So I think This Is Football is really good. Uh, I never finished it the first time when it came out summer of 2019. It's an Amazon original. Uh, and I, I like that it's not overly British and anglicized because I think so many of the uh, documentaries we watch in English language are, are taken from a British perspective. So there's a lot of German and Dutch. It's still kind of pan-European. Uh, I think European perspectives, you know, about African and Asian football, but it's it's you've got these different perspectives in there and there's a lot of good stuff on on the bundesliga there's a lot of good stuff on uh even uh, uh the swiss league and, and and things like that and and uh, Serie A. so i like that um summer of 92 is a movie which uh is about uh, the summer of well it is obviously about the summer of 92 but it's about the danish uh triumph in the euro 92 tournament which was filled with adversity you had star players who were fighting with other star players you had an fa and a manager fighting you had star players fighting with the manager you had star players saying hey i'm on holiday i'm not gonna go uh, because they had gotten into the tournament at the last minute when uh serbia yugoslavia were kicked out uh for uh human rights violations and and, and the war that was going on in the balkans at the time under slobodan milosevic and then they end up winning the euro so it's really it's kind of um there's kind of humor mixed into the the narrative, which is very kind of serious, and and the dark sides of the narrative, which is the the, the constant infighting. So I I really like that film. And then I believe in miracles, which came out uh, what two years ago, I think mm-hmm. now about Brian Clough and Nottingham Forest. That we've seen. This, this, I, I think a really interesting thing about the Clough uh, the things on Clough we've seen, and I think maybe it's skewed by Damned United, which we talked about last week is such a great movie, Chris. Yep. But there's so much more 
I think in the U.S. identification now with with uh, Clough and his time at Derby versus his time at Forest. It's important to note he took Forest, a provincial team, um, in the Midlands, in the East Midlands, uh, to a league title and then two European Cups in a row. Nottingham has won more European Cups as a city than um, than London has, which is pretty wow. amazing. Yeah. Uh, so it's about that era and that uh, era of players. Martin O'Neill as a player, who I think we all now know as a, as a fantastic manager, plays a big role in that documentary. And in, in, in he's kind of the spitting image of Clough, right? And he turned into that sort of manager and, and a number of other top players from that era. Uh, the other thing about this is I, I think there was a, uh, a again, a, uh, a, a love affair between Clough and Peter Taylor. The documentary doesn't really get into when Taylor leaves Clough and goes to manage Darby, where, of course, they had they had been together uh, for those successful years, so successful seven seasons, seasons from 67 to 73. And their, their friendship broke apart from that part, point, and they never reconciled um, until uh, Clough passed away. And, and, and if I remember correctly, or sorry, until Taylor passed away, if I remember correctly, it was because of... Um, a, Darby, a player moving from Forest to Derby, some sort of transfer that uh, that soiled their relationship. But yeah, if you like Brian Clough, uh, if you like talk of outsider clubs winning things, uh, check out this film. Uh, yeah. And I think it also reminds us that at the time Clough took over Forest, Knotts County had kind of the more established big history. They're both old clubs. They're both traditional clubs uh, in Nottingham, but it was very much a two-club town. And what has happened, what has progressed over the course of the last, uh, even though Nottingham Forest has been out of the top flight for 20 years, what has progressed over the last 40 years, 40-plus years, is that Knotts County has been reduced in scope and Forest has, in some respects, a global following. So a really pivotal time even in football in that town. Yeah, and that was a, I mean, a really, really good documentary. I remember watching that one too, um, I Believe in Miracles. Even if you're a fan of, say, um, 1970s or 1980s soccer, um, I mean, that that's also a, I mean, a good look to, to that one too. It's just an incredible documentary and a, an incredible story there. All right, Karthik, let's move on to the listener mailbag. We've got some uh, recommendations for documentaries too and movies from some of, some of our listeners. But first up is Alan, and he says, uh, a couple of weeks ago on your podcast, you and Kartik mentioned that you have been playing Football Manager 2020. I have never played video games, but with plenty of time on my hands in, the, in this lockdown, I thought I'd give it a try. I can now confirm to yourselves and to your listeners that playing Football Manager 2020 can make whole days of your life disappear. In fact, over the last week, the only time that I haven't played the game is when I've been watching instructional videos on YouTube about how to play the game. I'm not sure uh, that I will play when my life returns to some kind of normal, but for now, it is a good substitute for watching live football and football documentaries. I don't know whether to thank you or curse you. <laughs> oh, great stuff. Um <laughs> Yeah, and we can relate to that too. I mean, I think Kartik and I are on both, both extremes. Me not wanting to get into it, knowing how much time it's going to take. And then Kartik having uh, engaged in Football Manager for many, many years, knowing how much time it takes and then being able to try to balance it. Yeah, and, and so yeah, I'm, I'm going to 
respond to this that there's been in the last in this uh, month now, I think, of a shutdown or more, more of a, than a month of a shutdown. There have been times where I have told myself, do not pick the game up. And so I've gone four or five days without playing. And then when I pick it up, then nothing else gets done. And then it's like four or five days of just manic, uh, just constant playing and my sleep patterns are affected. Whatever else I'm working on is affected. So it's, uh, I, I think in this period, it's gotten even worse because uh, there's always the temptation to play it. Whereas oftentimes I had discipline prior to this, although not enough discipline. It's uh, it's addictive. The time commitment is enormous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I can't believe it's been a month, Kartik. It's been over a month since... Uh um, we've got the the Belarusian Premier League, but but in terms of you mean whether it's the last matches we watched would have been League MX matches, uh, the, the behind closed doors ones, yeah. and this month has in some ways flown by, in other ways crawled by. But uh, I'm sure listeners can uh, appreciate that. Next up is Mike Zale. Mike says, "I really enjoy your work. I am a huge fan of being sports, and actually cut the cord with Comcast as a result of their dispute." Besides Fubo, my most watched app on Roku is BN Sports Connect. I'm wondering though why BN does not have does not add the new BN Sports Extra to their Connect app. For me, it is becoming increasingly annoying to have to use a completely different app such as Pluto to access BN's own content. Now, Mike, this is a great. Uh, example of how confusing this could can be and 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 how frustrating it can be so not only does uh, not only can you watch be in sports extra the free one on pluto but they also have their own exclusive app too so if you have a roku you can just uh, go to the app specifically and watch content there some of the content on the be in sports extra app which is the free one uh is exclusive to that app um, most of it, though, is kind of really rebroadcast of other content uh, from uh, Begin Sports. So his question is kind of um, why couldn't they've included the Begin Sports extra content in the Connect app? I think in many ways, I think they want to try to have this app be free and um, accessible, no matter what happens. I mean, save. I mean, this wouldn't happen, but say if Fubo said tomorrow, okay, that's it, we're we're ending our relationship with Being Sports, and now Fubo TV subscribers could not access Being Sports Connect, and then would miss out uh, on all that content. Um, that Being Sports Extra app is still available to everyone, no matter what uh, cable service or TV service or any, any you you don't need any service. You can still access that, no matter what. So um, for people who do watch a lot of sports and a lot of soccer specifically and do watch content on Being Sports Connect, which I do too, Mike, and, and I know a lot of listeners do too, is it does become more complicated because it's, okay, which game is it going to be on? Is it on the extra app today, or is it, which is usually the, the, the French league, but, uh, or is it on Being Sports Connect? And which one do I have to load up? It, it is a pain in the neck. Um, but I guess being sports probably thought, okay, let's it's, let's go for the mainstream. Let's try to make it as as accessible as possible, and not worry about um, the actual current um, subscribers or current customers. Um, yeah, it's it's messy, messy. Hopefully, in the future, they can they can correct that. Next up is uh, Jim Hennessy. Jim says, "I would like to throw the documentary No Sir Chape, 2019, into the mix. This documentary tra- tracks the rebuilding of the Brazilian team Chapecoense 
after the devastating plane crash that wiped out the team in 2016. The documentary is incredibly moving, hard to think now, or hard to find now. I think it is available on Fox now. Hmm. I have not seen that, Kantik. I know that uh, it's supposed to be really, really good. I have to add that to my watch list. Yeah, and actually, since since this is being mentioned, and I uh, uh, such have such uh, painful memories of that, and actually have a, a, a Chapacuense uh, kit I bought after that. I think there was just this outpouring in, in the football world. Uh, another um, another movie, if you can stomach it, is United, which is about oh, yeah. Munich. Yeah, that was good. That was a really it, good. It's one. very good. I but it's it's I, I the disclaimer is it's really difficult to watch obviously yeah yeah and and uh it's uh if you're not bawling if you're not in in tears by the end of that movie i don't know what's uh if you're a human being (laughs) i was i I haven't seen this and thank you jim for the suggestion it's probably similar Mm -hmm. Uh, so but i will i will watch it at least once Next up is Bradley Moore. Bradley says, you were mentioning in your last part about documentaries that follow clubs that are rising up the ranks and tracks the club year after year. One series I have not seen uh, like that is the class of 92 out of their league, where the Man United class of 92, Neville, Scholes, Giggs, but um, by lowly Salford City with the help of Peter Lim. And uh, over the course of the four seasons they have shown thus far, went from the seventh tier of uh, English football to now playing in the Football League. The most telling thing about this series was the transformation of the club, not just in squad, but also in terms of facilities, bathrooms that don't work, uh, pie shop is um, being up to the, up, up to code, etc. And the volunteers that helped keep that club afloat before large investment came in. Something to keep in mind with, with respect to promotion relegation, which I am for, you do need people to help keep the lights on. The early seasons had been up on Netflix, the latter seasons aired on Sky Sports in the UK. And this one, yeah, I, I remember watching this one uh, about a year ago, around about. I, I, I enjoyed it. I didn't watch the whole series, maybe for part of the reason that, you I mean, not all the episodes were available on whatever streaming service I was using at the time. But um, yeah, if you can find that one, that's a highly recommended one also. Dave Roberts says, uh, Dave says, on a recent podcast, you were discussing briefly the documentary Once in a Lifetime. I'm wondering if you've read the book version of the film. While I agree with you that the film did do wonders, uh, for the nostalgia of the original NASL and actually made me long for those teams, even though I was born at the time when the league was was already beginning its decline. The book, however, really goes into its excellent detail to explain why it, it is considered to be a failure. It discusses the fiscal management, the overexpansion, and the various business and marketing mistakes that the league made, which led to its eventual implosion. If the filmmakers were maybe afforded another hour in the final cut, cut of the film, They could have gone into the same details which the book's author was able to explore. After reading the book, I was given a much better understanding as to why the league is considered a failure, even though there was about a decade where it seemed like NASL was going to be one of the big four leagues in America. I've even joked that the book uh, should be taught in business schools for how not to run a sports league. Also made me appreciate some of the steps MLS took in its early years to ensure its long-term sustainability. Thanks again for your podcast and for reading this email. Kartik, I did not read the book. Um, I know you're more of a book lover. I, I love books yeah, too. Yeah, I, I have read it. I own the book. I think of what 
ends up happening in the book that's the, a lot of it is similar to the documentary and even some of the uh the quotes uh are exactly the same as the documentary which oftentimes when books are interpreted into films or vice versa it doesn't happen so i appreciate that gavin newsom by the way not gavin newsom the mayor of, uh, the governor of california former mayor of san francisco gavin newsom who's british is the author um but then there was a lot uh, about financial controls over expansion, wrong markets, TV deals. And actually, the TV aspect, the film gets a little into, right, with Lee Stern, uh, who had been the owner of the Chicago Sting, and, and how he felt uh, ABC should have rolled out their uh, game of the week or their, their package. So um, there's a lot of... I think justification in the book for why MLS operated and the book was written in 2006. So mm -hmm. uh, MLS at that time has already contracted and they have had these incredibly tight controls on spending, which they don't have anymore. Um, they still have controls, but they don't have the kind of tight controls really from 2002 to 2007. They had ridiculous controls on spending. Uh, it, it's almost written as a justification for that. So I, um, I, read the book in 2006 or 2007, liked it, may have even written a review for, for our, one of our old sites, EPL Talk or, or World Soccer Talk, of the book, not mm -hmm. of, the, of the film. We'd all seen the film. As time has gone on, I've fallen less in love with that book or fallen out of love with the book because I think it is constructed as a justification of the way MLS is operating. Yeah. So and it could, that may not then color my views of whether it's really a, a good book. And I preferred uh, Ian Plenderleet's Rock and Roll Soccer, which was written uh, more recently. I preferred that as a retrospective about the NASL to Once in a Lifetime because uh, Plenderleet does not uh, use uh, NASL's uh, failure at the end as a justification for MLS. Uh, he hardly mentions MLS in the book, um, which is very plunderleth, by the way. Um, we both, mm -hmm. you and I, both talked about the, uh, him for for many years. So, um, but it's it's more of a, a, a balanced kind of maybe overly romantic retrospective plunderleth book. But I would suggest reading Ian Plunderleth's Rock and Roll Soccer. There you go. So you got another great uh, book recommendation there. Uh, John Average Geek says loved the late '90s uh, DC United teams. It is what MLS needed at the start. I think MLS Extra Time just had Kevin Payne on, and it was a great interview on how they built the team. And last but not least, uh, Raymond Roscoe says, uh, "Do you think the the Beckham experiment actually helped English soccer more than MLS when it comes to converting fans here in the United States?" And I, I think so. I, I've never thought about it this way, Kartik, but I think so in many ways. I think that um, oftentimes Major League Soccer, I mean, it has been here, I mean, since like, what, the late 90s. But um, oftentimes it's been like, for example, the even like the MLS All-Star Games and the teams coming through uh, and then International Champions Cup and all the what MLS has helped bring into this country, which has been a lot of uh, foreign teams playing on the soil uh, in the beginning, kind of playing playing against a lot of these MLS teams, and then taking Dave, someone like David Beckham, you mean a star in Europe, bringing them to Major League Soccer and LA Galaxy. Um, yes, it definitely helped Major League Soccer, but it may have actually helped uh, the Premier League and English soccer even more so, where people would see watch the games and 
go like, wow, okay, let me get into the story of uh, Manchester United and and watching Real Madrid or watching, uh, I mean, it's almost like a, a good gateway drug, uh, David Beckham is, into into other soccer. So for the mainstream audience, I think that, that could very well much be true, that uh, actually helped the Premier League more than it did Major League Soccer in, in the long term. Yeah, that's a really good question, Raymond. I've never thought about it that way. But if you look at the timing as to when English football in particular began to really explode in the United States. It, it kind of coincides with Beckham coming here and there, I think just being a deepening interest in the sport in general and MLS taking advantage of Beckham to a certain extent, but also uh, not able to fully, um, fully leverage it. I, and I think also, and I know we know how angry MLS people, how personally they took Beckham's uh, desire to, uh, to, to play for AC Milan. Right. Uh, and PSG. During that period, right. How personally, how offended they were and how insecure they were about it. I think that Beckham engineering, and obviously that was to an Italian club, not to an English club, but still kind of reinforced were to people who may have just been opening up uh, their soccer fandom uh, where MLS stood in, in the global game. And mm-hmm. remember, Chris, I mean, I don't know if people recall this, how much anger there was among the MLS, the, the same people who would argue against ProRel now about Beckham doing that and going to AC Milan and how Milan was being disrespectful to Major League Soccer and Beckham had a contract and, and how how dare he put uh, th- this above MLS. And, and remember all of that? It was just, it was nuts. But yeah. I think that created some of the, uh, the situation where uh, people thought, began exploring foreign leagues. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question and, and some great points there too, Kartik, from you in terms of, uh, yeah, in hindsight, thinking back to, to it, um, I can see that. I mean, we saw that a little bit too with uh, Frank Lampard when yeah. he, he ended up playing for Manchester City when we thought he was coming over to play for NYC FC and uh, just the, the pecking order as far as uh, the priority list of uh, where these professional athletes placed the clubs um, in order. And um, it wasn't with Major League Soccer at the top, even though, they were, I mean, hired by Major League Soccer to to play in that league. Yeah, I mean, when Henri went uh, went back to uh, Arsenal for for two months or whatever, uh, I mean, and that was particularly special because he's so, so connected to that club. But yeah. um, and it allowed him uh, to finish his uh, his European career playing for Arsenal rather than for Barcelona, which I, I particularly liked uh, because obviously he had come from Barcelona to Major League Soccer. But there, there were a lot of those, right? Robbie Keane went to Aston Villa uh, for uh, a couple of months, which uh, was interesting because he had played for a number of clubs. And, uh, that, you know, he Wolves. played for Wolves. He played for Coventry, right? Do I remember? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think he started yeah, out. He played for two clubs that are direct rivals, local rivals of, of Villa. So he goes and plays for Villa also, uh, which was neat. And then uh, I remember Omar Gonzalez went to Nuremberg. Uh, the, the, the famous case of this actually is when, uh, speaking of Nottingham Forest, a great way to end the show, when Benny Olsen, Ben Olsen, whose entire career was in Major League Soccer otherwise, went to Nottingham Forest on loan, but then got hurt. Uh, but it was one of those loans where he was going during the MLS offseason to stay fit, uh, and uh, he got injured there. But who knows? He might have played well enough for Forest that they would have tried to buy him. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, we want you to have your say. So if you have any uh, recommendations for books, uh, for documentaries, if you disagree or agree with anything uh, we've said, or if you have some questions such as um, 
the the question that Mike had about streaming, um, being sports or streaming any any soccer, basically, uh, let us know. You can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com, as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk and on Twitter at worldsoccertalk. Plus, of course, you can post your comments on worldsoccertalk.com, the website that started this all. And Kartik, um in terms of where we're at with things, um, we're kind of in a, in a stage where there's been discussions of soccer coming back potentially in May. Um, then we're hearing June. I mean, the, the dates being thrown out are constantly changing. It's kind of a it's an ongoing process. But um, but for the listeners, listeners, we do appreciate you sticking around, uh, listening to this podcast every week. We really enjoy doing it. Um, talking about the things that we've been watching as well as um, some recommendations of, of things to watch. Hopefully all of this will return to normal at some point in the future with games at least behind closed doors just to fulfill the the obligations and um, take it step by step just as we've been going with this podcast uh, throughout this past month. But um, yeah, so if you haven't uh, checked it out also, uh, the Heart of the Game podcast series uh, the latest interview is with Phil Bonney, who is a uh, one of the top uh, Bundesliga commentators and also a, a fan of Southampton Football Club. Uh, a really good uh, interview there. And Kartik, uh, what's going on in your life before we uh, close out? Anything uh, interesting? Anything uh, exciting going on? Or, or just, yeah, uh, I've, I've just been absorbed in this book about Florida history I'm writing. And, and the unfortunate thing or fortunate thing, you can... Um, I, I I don't know how to describe it. Basically, you start doing historical research with one premise in mind, and then you get kind of drawn to another to, to where the research takes you. So uh, the thing that now is coming out in my research is that there is an incredible uh, amount of religious um, motivation or religious uh, Religion plays a big part in the development of Florida and the development of the of the thirteen colonies to the north, and why uh, people fought on one side uh, in the American Revolution or not, to the point where it was very much kind of a civil war. Um, and I, I think there's that general theme in English history, right? And this is basically an extension of English history what I'm talking about, even though it's on uh, the U.S. soil. But there's um, there's different things with different religious denominations, which were fascinating that I hadn't really thought about before I started researching. So, so you learn something every day. Yeah. And for those listeners who, who may not know, so Kartik's writing a book about Florida history, um, I mean, from kind of the British side in terms of uh, the British influence. Um, but obviously intertwined with uh, the Spanish. But the book title... I mean, it's a long title, but the, it, it's called Albion. But yeah. so, what's the connection between Albion? Like, so if you look at a uh, West Bromwich Albion or Brighton and Hove Albion, and then the name of the book Albion, talking about Florida history, what's the connection there? What's what's the uh... it's kind of a historic term for Britishness? So one of the things that's really kind of weird is that. Uh, West Brom and Brighton, and there are a few other Burton Albion. There are a couple clubs that have stuck it in their um, in, in in their club name mm-hmm. uh, when, when it's actually just kind of a a a term, a general term for the for 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 Britishness, the island. Um, it may be laying claim to uh, more than just England in mm-hmm. a way. Uh, maybe for all of Great Britain, but it's uh, it, it, it's actually I picked the the title, I picked the the term because it's uh, it, it just sounds different. It was going to originally be something Florida and Britain, and then that just sounds very generic and academic, right? So yeah. 
wanted something that sounded a little different. Maybe that's why those clubs did it. I would have to look into the history. And there's a there's another Brian Clough reference with uh, Brighton Hove and Albion, where he uh, where he, by the way, did manage, which the damned United film does not show that he did manage there for a season. That's right. Uh, and they they some creative liberty to right in the film they had taylor managed and taylor did take over from him there taylor chose not to go to leeds with him but uh they they show it as if he never managed there and in fact clough in his uh uh it, it, later on in life said mike bamber who we see him shaking hands with uh and then walking out on essentially in the film was one of the nicest men and best men he worked for it was really agonizing to leave brighton because i had a good chairman and then mm-hmm. i went to and had what I had, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Mandy Cousins and, and, and this kind of, uh, you know, very corporate-ish uh, results-oriented board. But um, yeah, it's funny. I guess this entire podcast has been about Brian Clough in some way. <laughs> well, the name of it is good in terms of the name Albion. I think that's easier to remember. And uh, once that book is uh, finished, been written and then published, it'll be easier to find, that's for sure. So, so listeners, thank you for listening. You can get a new episode of the podcast every Thursday on... Uh, uh, every major podcast player, including Spotify, including Google Home, including Alexa, um, as well as uh, YouTube and WorldSoccerTalk.com, etc. If you like, if you like the show, share it with your friends on social media, and we'd really, really appreciate it if you uh, post a review on iTunes. Um, give us a written re- review. Let us know how we're doing. If you like us, don't like us, or in between, uh, any feedback would be great. And last but not least, Kartik, uh, heading into another weekend of uncertainty. Uh, what should they do? Enjoy your tape football. <laughs> <laughs>